Kevin told me uh, that he was going to be gone May 15th. And then he asked me, he said, perhaps you could speak and sit in there. I said, yeah, yeah, sure, no, no problem. I, I can do that. That, that weekend will work. Uh, and then we started discussing, um, you know, what, what I might do. And I, we, we talked about, well, maybe perhaps I just keep the First Peter study moving forward. He's been going through First Peter. And I said, that might be a good way to do it. And then sort of keep see some continuity there. Um, so I liked the idea. I said, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. So then, you know, a couple of days later, I texted him. I said, what, where will you be in First Peter when you're gone? And then he texted me. You know, Kevin's pretty quick on text back. He wrote back and he said, First Peter 3, 1 through 7. And then he had a couple exclamation points. And I was like, the exclamation points sort of clear me. Maybe there's something I need to go read. First Peter 3, 1 through 7 that he's alerting me to. And sure enough, I, I, you know, I wrote back at the time. I said, yeah, great. I'll, I'll dive into that. I'll start, I'll start preparing now. And so I, I did. I turned right after I got off that, you know, done looking at the text. I opened my Bible app and I opened... 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and this is what I read. In the same way, wives be submissive to your own husbands. And I, I just stopped right there. I was like, oh, really? Is this, I mean, I was like, is this the section? I mean, I, I'm, I mean we're laughing about it. There's, there's no word of God that, that isn't valuable for us. I don't want to laugh at God's word here. But I was just struck with this sort of apprehension. I was like, Really? Isn't there something else I could teach on besides that? But, but nonetheless, I said, well, you know, would this have been my first text to pick? If I was speaking, just if someone asked me to speak, it's sort of doubtful that I would pick this. Um, I would typically choose some story that might get us really fired up and really excited, you know, to get out there and, and for the Lord. But and then I said, you know, if you're going to teach the word, and if you're a good Bible teacher, or even just a good disciple, for that matter, which all of us here are, we need to be able to let all of God's words speak. When you get to tough sections, you don't just skip over it. You need to see what is in there for us to learn. Uh, because regardless of whether we find it less exciting or more exciting, or in this case, more contentious with the culture around us, we need to be able to know what it says, why it says it, and what does the Lord have for us. So I just, I kept trucking with the general plan, although I, I sort of understood. I see how this is going to work now with Kevin. He just passed the baton off. I'm out of here. You know, but anyway, I just, I kept trucking. I dove into First Peter 3, and the reality is I find some principles herein that are actually they're, they're pretty exciting, and, and, and in a way, they can be looked upon as something that can motivate us, very much so, especially in our marriages, um, because we hear a lot of things in our world outside our doors. We hear a lot of things against passages like this, and so we need to know what it says, because our marriages are ultimately at stake, and our testimonies to those that we love it's ultimately at stake. The witness to the world around us and the spiritual powers that are watching, that's at stake. Uh, now, I'll give you the warning. This is a passage, as I mentioned a second, many would look at this in our culture and just rather delete, hit the delete key. Or they would look at this passage and say, ah, see, this is what I've been trying to tell you, folks. That's the problem with God's word. And they would say, this is, this is, the, this is the issue. Uh, 
so we have to know that's the reality. And I want you to please realize that the words we're going to read, at least from the scriptures here, are God's words. This is, these are God's designs. They are his intents. They're not, not, you know, they're not coming from me. Now, I'll probably add some words in there, and hopefully they're good. If they're not, they go in one ear and out the other and throw them in the garbage. But let's stick with what God says. So I pray that my role will simply be to let this speak clearly. So I'm going to say a prayer. Lord, we come before you. We thank you for an opportunity to open your word. We do want to be good disciples and good students of your word, allowing the whole counsel of your word to speak, both Old Testament, New Testament, big challenging texts and less challenging texts, some more exciting than others. But when we get to these passages, may we see the value because marriage is critical to you, it's critical to us, and it's critical as a foundation to this culture we live in. And we just pray that your word will speak to us. You'll use your spirit to convict us, to guide us into truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what is it about submission or subjecting ourselves to an authority structure that bothers us so much. Yeah, you think about it, do you really like being told what speed you have to go? Do you like being told how much money you've got to give the government every April? Maybe, is, are you kidding me? Uh, do you like being told what time you have to show up at work, what time you get to go home, and, and when you get your lunch break? Do you like to be told to clean up your room, to do the dishes. I look over here at Andrew, but anyway, <laughs> you saw that glass. Do, do you like to be told to take out the trash? Well, as you know, in our household, we have five kids. It doesn't take too long before you realize, Houston, we've got a little bit of a problem with the whole submitting to authority role type of thing. We, there's something innate within us. Why is it that any time we come to a passage like 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, uh, and messages about submission, we, we typically try to sort of avoid it, skirt it, maybe soften it to a, to a degree, change it to make it fit a little bit better. Uh, I think it's because there's something innate in our flesh. There's something within our flesh that we fundamentally do not like the idea of submitting submitting to anything in reality. The flesh wants to do, always do its own thing. And I would almost coin this as the ancient dilemma. My will or thy will, O oh God? This is the big question. And God has engineered this universe such that we get a chance, every one of you gets a chance to answer that question, me included. How will we respond to this fundamental question, my will or thy will. Satan answered it, Isaiah 14, 13, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That'd be all the other angels. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. High, he wanted to go above and beyond. He wanted to overtake the Lord's authority. He did not like the idea of submitting to the Lord's authority, even though he was his very creator. However, you see, Jesus' answer is quite the opposite. For I have come down from the heavens, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He repeats that in John 5.30, 
And in John 12, 49, for I did not speak on my own initiative, Jesus says, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Every word that Jesus spoke was as a direct command from the Father. And he submitted to that command and brought those words to us. And he says it wasn't his initiative to speak those things, but it was the Father's. His answer quite opposite of Satan's answer. Then you look at the Garden of Eden. Only one stipulation given to us and mankind. One requirement that the authority requires. And he says, you don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Question, can we submit to that authority? Are we willing to bow the knee to that authority? Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. He repeats it in nine. Can we bow the knee to the Lord Yahweh and thus find the foundation of knowledge and wisdom? Or will we choose our own way? It's an issue of our hearts. Are we going to walk by the flesh or walk by the spirit? Apart from the Lord and his spirit, if we are walking as natural people on this earth, we'll choose our own way rather than bowing the knee to God. But yet, as Kevin has been teaching us in 1 Peter chapter 2, he calls us to walk as a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He calls us in two, we'll look at this in a second, he calls us aliens and strangers, citizens of heaven that are just here for a time that we would live out as an example to others around us that are watching how we behave. He says in 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, the things of flesh is after the self-willed things of the flesh, which wage war against the soul, but keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of his visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, and so on and so forth. He calls us aliens, strangers, abstaining from self-willed flesh, living as examples to those around us, to those in the culture by our behavior. And what is his first sort of applicable thing that he calls us to do, given that charge? Submit to authorities. Submission is one of our main ways of demonstrating to those around us. And in the first case, it was submission to governing authorities and human institutions. Now, we read the whole of chapter 3. We find out Peter's going to introduce us to another institution, an extremely critical institution. 1 Peter 3.1, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children, 
if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, Peter starts us out here in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. What way? What's the way in the same way that he's talking about? I think he's pointing us back to chapter 2, right? That's why I've sort of read back in through 2.11 through 13. But he gets down into 2.19 and he gives us Christ as the paramount example. Kevin taught about this last week. He starts out in 2.19, For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For you have been called, verse 21, for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And while being reviled, verse 23, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So when we look at the, these steps that, that Christ gave, as we are to follow, or these wives are to walk in the same way, we see that Christ was entrusting himself to God the Father. That is a Greek word meaning to surrender or to yield up to the Father. So we have this perfect example in Christ. For the sake of conscience towards God the Father, he did not argue back. He did not revile in return. He did not threaten those that were threatening him. But he surrendered and yielded up to the Father. And in so doing, I believe, his example has won the favor of many, first and foremost, God the Father, but us sitting here right today. He has won billions of souls to him by walking and living out this call to be submissive to an authority structure above him in the Father. So, in the same manner of submission, he calls the wives to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, there's a few things we've got to look at or just pause and state before we go a whole lot further. This section is to husbands and wives. It is not some general principle for all male-female, men and women relationships just out in, 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 the, in the world around us. This is for a marriage relationship, husbands and wives. If you get the call there, he says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Number two, this is not about superiority or inferiority. Uh, in other words, Peter is not stating the husband is superior to the wife and the wife is inferior to her husband. We'll look at that a second when we look at the Godhead. But what this is about is about authority within a God-defined institution. By the way, what was the very first institution ever set up on this planet by God himself before any governments ever existed, before any nation was ever named, before he had ever articulated his Mosaic law, before he had set apart the nation of Israel, well before he ever instituted the, the church, he instituted marriage and the creation of the family. It is the first divinely created institution. And there's a few things you got to know about divinely 
God-created institutions. One is they always have structure. They always have an authority structure. Why? Well, number one, God is not a God of confusion, it says. He is a God of peace, structure, and order. And I think his institutions, his structures, they actually mirror himself. Even within the Godhead, we talk about the first person of the Godhead. We talk about the second person. We talk about the third. We'll look at some passages that show a relationship in just a second. I think I may have one already up there. But the point is, is that there's authority, there's structure. Now, is the third less, is he inferior? Why do we call him the third, the spirit? Oh, he's number three. He's, he's, that, he's third in terms of his capabilities, Third, in terms of his, his superiority, his, his, that's, that isn't the case. That is not the case in the Godhead. But these relationships, these institutions like marriage, it mirrors the Lord. In 1 Corinthians eleven three. but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. That's God the Father. Do you see an authority structure here? It's fairly clear. You know, you want, we, we come in here today, we're at Christ Community Church, and say, well, Kevin's a senior pastor. We, he has an authority position. Amen, he does. Does he report to a, an authority above him? Yes, he does. The head of the church. He does have someone he reports to. Um, we also have to remember, again, that this headship concept doesn't mean, as I've stated, superiority, superiority or inferiority. Look at John 10.30. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. Similar to how husbands and wives are called one. So there's no, there's no distinction in that regard in terms of level of, of power or capability. Was the son there at the creation? Was the son involved in creation? Was it his word that spoke for? Yes, it was. Was God the father acting? Yes, he was. Did they both have? Are they equal? Yes, they are. We know this too with men and women in the, in the marriage relationship. Back in 1 Corinthians 11, 11, it says, the, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man nor is man independent of woman. There is a spiritual view that said these are all the same. Just like God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the same. And one, united. But yet authority and willing to walk within the structure that God has defined. Next, I think a third point, you got to understand this whole term Submission. What does this mean? Good news on this one is that the word is fairly common in the New Testament. It's not that difficult to see as you dive a little into the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar. I like to read people that do study it. I like to sort of use my computer Bible now to sort of dive in a little. It's pretty cool. But we find this word submission is hupotasso, which is actually a compound word made up of hupo, meaning under, and tasso, meaning to arrange in an orderly manner. So it means to simply arrange yourself under. That's the basic idea behind this hupotasso. Uh, in the context of 1 Peter 2 and 3, he uses it five times. And I really think the basic definition can, should be applied. Simply to order underneath another. And to respond positively to the institutions that God has established. Versus fighting back. Shaking our fist. Uh, instead of rebellion against the structures he has made. Now, we could also zoom out beyond just this passage. I could make a, a case that every one of us here in the church are called to this hupotasso role, this 
subjecting ourselves. For it says in Ephesians 1, 22, starts out, he put all things, this is God the Father, in subjection, hupotasso, under his feet, and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church. So there's the head of the church. Then we fast forward to Ephesians 5. Paul says, speaking to the church, how we are to act, what we are to do. He says, we are to speak in 19 to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another, hupotasso to one another in the fear of Christ. There's the call for us to walk in a way that we're walking with attitudes and actions that yield this harmonious or melody-making encouragement. And it's interesting because back in 1 Peter 3, when we're not there, we'll get to it next week, he gets to verse 8. You know where Peter's going to end up? The same concept. Walk with this, 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 this harmonious attitude, working together, the husbands and the wives, and as we move forward. Uh, so we're, to, we're called to live in that regard. Now, Paul, back in Ephesians, dives a little deeper with this concept of subjection or submission as he, as he outlines the church structure that he has founded. He notes some, some delineated position or roles. 22 of Ephesians, he picks the same concept up. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject, hupotasso, to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. So you got to get this picture here. The husband and the wife mirror Christ and the church. I really shouldn't have, I was thinking about this in between services. I don't like my title anymore. This call for godly, I would actually like to change it to reflecting him and his church. Because that is ultimately what this is about between husbands and wives and wives submitting. Do you get this in 24? The church subjects itself to Christ. The church doesn't rebel against Christ. And the wives sub submit and subject her herself to her husband and doesn't rebel against him. And it mirrors that to the culture around us. Now back in Peter, he calls the wives to submit to their own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word. Now, this is Peter doing like he did back in two. He sort of ups the bar every time. Right when you think, oh, we might have an out there for the, for the servants. Maybe they could get out if the masters are a little harsh. Nope. He says you keep submitting. You keep following in there. Same thing here. It's like even when the husband is disobedient to the word, you stay with the, is that, that there's no out for the submission clause. Now, I do want to home in on this disobedient word just a second, because I think it, sometimes the disobedient translation, I'm not sure that that's the best translation, actually. I think it would be better to say disbelieves, because if you study out the word apitheo, you'll find it means to disbelieve or to be unpersuaded or unconvinced. So the picture here that I believe Peter is wanting us to see is that the husband is not being persuaded to belief in the, in, the, in the word. So it could be the wife has tried 
Others have tried. This particular husband is not persuaded. And by the way, Peter uses a construction here in Greek that's sort of cool. He uses an if statement. So that even if there's a disobedient husband, he may be one without a word. That if statement in Greek, they got a, they got a few more classifications of things than we do in English. If I say, you know, I hope to go out to the creek if it doesn't rain today. That's a 50-50, and it sounds like right now I know which way I'd bet on that one. But the point is, we use if statements that could go either way. In Greek, they, could, they had a first class, second class, third class, and fourth class way of the way they constructed their if statements. In this case, Peter used a first class conditional if statement, meaning if there are any husbands that are disobedient, and I know there are, First class, that's what it means. And I know that this is the case, that there are these disbelieving, unpersuaded husbands that are out there. Here's how you handle that situation. He says that actually their submission, instead of getting out from the submissive clause, he says, no, actually, you keep submitting. And the attitudes and the behaviors therein are actually the best way to win that disbelieving husband without even a single word. So the submissions is actually the mechanism by which this wife has a, has a, has a better chance of moving that, uh, that unbelieving husband. Now, if you're a person like me, you hear this thing about you're going to win a person without a word. Now, I like words, as you can maybe already tell. <laughs> I may like them a little too much, to be honest. But I, you know, you probably heard it say about, you know, Joel's verbose. He's, he's, he's not succinct. He's long-winded. And the reality is I'd say, amen. That's right. I, that's just one of my flaws. I tend to get, I tend to use too many words at times. But here he's saying, you can win this person over. You have a chance to win this unbelieving husband over by simply your actions, not words. It won't be your nagging and your argumentation that will win them over. And I'm saying that you can't use the good words, but it's going to be more in line with the behavior of these wives. Now, you know, I have this quote, unspoken acting is more powerful than unperformed speaking. And I'll have to just say, too, it's easy for a man to just tune tune out his wife. I mean, I hate to say it, I've done it. And when I've done it, it hasn't fared too well. I'll tell you that. <laughs> she says one thing, it goes in one ear, out the other. I go on, then come around. She, didn't you hear what I told you? I mean, she's in between services. She was telling me we got a birthday party coming up at 1.30. I actually remembered that. See, I, I got that down. I, I did listen there. But the point is, is that her actions, her behaviors, a consistent action of love and care, it's hard to ignore that. It's hard to tune that out. So Peter says these unpersuaded or unbelieving husbands may be one as they observe the chaste and respectful behavior of these, of these wives. The idea behind the Greek word translated chaste is to be free from defilement, pure, holy, and sacred. The idea behind this word respectful can be defined as reverence or fear or awe. So that the wife is in a position and behaves in such a way that it's not marked by sin and argumentation and rebellion, but is marked by purity, reverence towards her spouse. And this, my friends, has a great ability to influence 
these husbands. And, you know, reality is this is a principle that it spans beyond just this topic of husbands and wives. This week, Riley was telling me that she's, she's in uh, eighth grade. She went to school. She had a little New Testament with her. Um, and she, at some point in the day, she decided to get out her Bible and read her Bible. Didn't say a word to anybody. People, of course, asked, what are you, what are you reading? And they get my little Bible. They said, one of them said, she said, well, they all started laughing. Briley's been Bibleized. And they're all sort of joking about it. But the reality was, then the next day, two other kids brought their Bibles. Two other kids brought their Bibles and were reading it. And just simple acting it out and behaving in such a way, it had an influence on people without even a single word. Uh, now, back in Peter, 1 Peter 3, we find that when we get to chapter, uh, verses 3 and 4, Peter starts hitting on something that I believe men and women alike many times get out of priority. And that is the external versus the internal. Peter says to wives, he says, let not your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of hair, wearing of jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Verse 3 presents the externals, hair, jewelry, and clothing. Verse 4 presents the internals, the heart and the spirit of the wife. And he directly contrasts these two realities because it's very easy to get these out of order. We many, many times prioritize the outside to make it look good and then later on worry about the internals, whereas God, with God, it's the exact opposite. Peter says these wives should prioritize what matters most, and that is the hidden person of the heart. Now, before we look at those inward characteristics, I do want to just very briefly comment on the externals that Peter says the wives' adornment must not be merely external. The word adornment is the Greek word cosmos. You've probably heard of it. It's where we actually get the word cosmetics from. And it's the basic definition, or its basic meaning, is that of order and arrangement and structure. It's many times used in Scripture as the world that God has designed, the structure he has designed, in a very massive and big sense. But here, he says, this cosmos must not be merely external. Now, is Peter saying that it is wrong for a wife to take time to order her hair or, you know, set her jewelry well or her clothing? Is there something wrong with that? I don't think that's the answer. Uh, we know from other scriptural precedents that taking time to adorn oneself with good, in good order is a good thing. We see in Psalms 144.12, let our sons and their youth be as grown-up plants and our daughters as corner pillars fashioned as for a palace. In the Proverbs 31 woman that you know of, she says in 31.22, she makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. And then Psalm 96.9, worship the Lord in holy attire. That word in Hebrew, attire, you could look it up, can also mean adornment. So how do we, you know, you look at that and there's good, good passages about adorning oneself well. And just by the way, how did God adorn his high priests? I mean, there's all kinds of awesome stuff and, and stones and the most costly linens. And they, 
There was nothing wrong. It was actually to set them apart as being holy. Um, so I don't believe the collier is that they can't take time to set their hair and their jewelry and their clothing, but the calling is on what matters most for a Christian wife, and that is her inward beauty, to prioritize that and her heart. He calls this the hidden person of the heart. This idea behind hidden is one of secrecy or concealment as opposed to that which is on display outward, just uh, on the physical outward front. Uh, This is the area of this God-fearing wife that involves the affections of her soul, the desires of her heart. And we know from Proverbs 4.23 that we are told to watch over our heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life. And this is a woman that has that inward character and her heart is a focus and a priority. And Peter highlights a specific quality within that hidden person of the heart And that is, this quality with as incredible intrinsic value, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. We live in a world where everything around us is deteriorating in some way, shape, or form. We're actually, Chris and I are actually building a cabin out on some land that we've owned for about 13 years. Paid a lot of money for the lumber. It's just unbelievable how expensive this stuff is nowadays, like $10 for a two by four. But anyway, we get out there, they start building this stuff, brand new wood. Well, guess what? We get rain like we're getting right now, more. You remember two weeks ago, just rain, rain, rain. I go out there already, the subfloor is starting to, I mean, it's always starting to bow up a little here and there. It's already beginning the process of deterioration. Uh, So, you know, he's in, in, he says here, though, that there is an imperishable thing that, this, that she can possess, something imperishable, undecaying, and it's this gentle and quiet spirit. The word quiet could be translated tranquil or peaceful. So she has this tranquil spirit. Her hair, the outward hair, it may deteriorate. The jewelry that she has, it may break. Her Apple watch may fail. Perhaps you're a woman that likes the Lululemon stuff. It's going to go, it, it's going to one day be a thing of the past and worn out. Maybe though that wedding dress, moths might get it, eat it up. That, those cool jeans that I gave Chris a few years back for Christmas, yeah, they're sort of wearing out now. They, those outward things, they wear out. But the hidden person of the heart, marked by this gentle and tranquil spirit, it will live on. In fact, that imperishable word is translated elsewhere as immortal. So the idea that she can possess something that lives on forever. And my friends, it says right here that this is extremely valuable to God the Father. When it says that this is precious in his sight, that word means very costly. This is of innate value to God the Father, this hidden person of the heart with this hidden, this character of a peaceful and tranquil spirit. For God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks deep into the heart. Now, several years ago, I went on a business trip to India, and, and I was driving down the road, and, and, I, and I, I had to look this photo back up. It was about a decade ago, but this, I, I've never forgotten this photo because it was like, you got these people, you know, over there in India, it's a tough, tough place in certain areas, cities. A lot of people living with very little. I mean, the shanties everywhere that people lived in, 
you know, the roads are a mess, and it was just, it was a tough place to, to try to live. But, but then we have this billboard here, and I'm driving along like, wow, look at this. I mean, th- this is what, when they, when they have a wedding ceremony, this is the way they adorn the bride. And it's, in one way, it's a really cool thing, but they, they, they actually, I've talked to folks over there, they have to take loans out just to pay for the gold and the diamonds and the jewelry and the things they put on, on their women when they have these, their weddings. And the reality is, is that is, is all outward things. There's nothing wrong with it. But I, even I like the quote here, designed for a lifetime of happiness. And, <laughs> but things will change, won't they? Things will change over time. But there's a chance that this person, this God-fearing wife can possess something that'll last forever truly last forever, a lifetime of happiness, not just in, in, the, in the physical world, but beyond. Now, Peter closes out this section with, with an example. He says, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, as I start to close, I just quickly hit a few points here in this, this example that Peter brought up. Because I think there's actually some cool lessons from these last two verses. Number one, this call for wives to submit to their husbands is not a new call. Uh, and it, the, this is not a cultural thing. It transcends the cultures. Which women did he decide to pull out and say, here's an example woman for you to consider or, or women, and which woman specifically did he lay before those first century Roman wives? He went all the way back to women's of, women of former days. He went all the way back to Sarah's day. He brought Sarah up. We're going all the way back to Genesis, early Genesis. Do you think Sarah's culture and the Roman first century culture, quite different probably. But yet he says, this principle still applies. And look at the way they did it. So I think that's one key takeaway. Second takeaway from this conclusion, the willingness in heart for a wife to submit to her husband must ultimately be empowered by their trust and their obedience in Christ. The reason I say that is notice the specific things Peter cites as examples in these holy women from the previous generations. First, he calls them holy women. Second, he says their hope, he highlights, They were women who hoped in God. They did not place their hope in man. They did not place their hope in the world. They did not place their hope in their own prowess or their skills. They were wives that based their lives on a genuine trust in the Lord their God. And as a result in that trust and as a result of their walk of holiness, then they were able to live out God's call to submit in their marriages. Third thing. He brings up Sarah, like I mentioned. This example of Sarah sheds light on a heart of submission expressed in a very simple but profound title of respect and honor. Uh, This verbal recognition that her husband Abraham was the head of their marriage, she did it by calling him Lord. Now, I just made an error there. I said the verbal recognition of calling him Lord. Now, I'm not saying she didn't ever say it verbally, but what I find very interesting is that there's only one verse in the Bible where she calls Abraham Lord, little L Lord. 
And the, I don't know if you remember which one it is, but it's when she's standing sort of outside the tent, you know, over at the door, sort of listening into this conversation between Abraham and the messengers. And the messenger says, you know, I'm going to return next year, and Sarah will be pregnant when she'll bear a son. You know, he gives him this incredible promise. And then she, and this is what it says. Then Sarah, Genesis 18, 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? And she laughed. And you know the story when the messenger says, why did Sarah just laugh? laugh? And she said, no, 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 but I didn't laugh. And she said, oh, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> I always love that little dialogue. But anyway, she laughed. But here, notice, she laughed. She said to herself, she laughed to herself. I think this is in her heart. She's saying this in her heart. She calls him Lord, little L, in her heart. She showed a position in honoring Abraham within her heart. It's easy to honor someone with your words. This people honors me with their lips, the Lord says, but their hearts are far from me. It's quite different for a woman to actually honor in her heart her husband by calling him Lord, giving him a position. I'm not going to make any, you know, statements about Chris calling me Lord, but... uh, (laughs) But I said that yesterday, I was like, I don't think I want you to call me Lord, first of all. That just puts it down. I don't know where I'm going with that. But the point is, is that, I, you know, I just, I'm fine with what she calls me. But, but Sarah here was willing to give Abraham a position of authority and respect in their marriage. Fourth and final thing is he brings up for today, God-fearing wives today can follow in the footsteps of these examples as they walk by the Spirit and not by fear. You hear a call in there, don't be afraid, don't be frightened, walk into this. You wonder, why is Peter so, why is he talking about being afraid? Why the call to not fear? Well, just real fast consider this. If they follow, if these women, these wives, follow through with the call for submission, uh, and let's go even back to the first century, and let's say like Peter said, that their, their husbands are, you know, disobedient or disbelieving, what might they face? What might life be like with their antagonistic husband? Constantly say, oh, you believe that gibberish? They may have to face this day in, day out. I pray that none of you have had to face that, but the reality is we shouldn't be afraid. He said, don't be afraid. Now let's jump to today. What about today? If a Christian woman marries today and desires to live under this lordship of God's design in marriage. She desires to be a reflection of the church subjecting herself to to Christ. What might she face in the culture around her? Ridicule. Other other non-believing women looking down on her, treating her with contempt. You kidding me? Look at how she's, she's weak. She's not, she's, she's not valuing herself enough. She needs to get out of that. Get up. And she could feel weighted down with that. It's a, it can be a, it's a tough position. You're taking a stand against a culture that is moved by the God of this world that has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. So he says, don't be afraid to these wives as they take this position. So when we look out at our culture today, men and women are fed a lot of different messages. 
a lot of different doctrines, a lot of different worldviews. Many of these messages, I believe, feed right into our flesh, making us out to be the heads, making us out to be the authorities, making us out to be the, rule, the ones that rule. We don't have to submit to God's design with the genders. We don't have to honor God, the, one, the kings that he has selected to rule these nations on the earth. The idea of submitting to anything, let alone another person, is looked upon as a disgrace and a sign of inferiority. But, but Peter says, we need to live not in fear of that culture, but rather live as aliens and strangers in this world, walking out amongst them examples so that, do you remember back at the beginning? So that they can see it. And that in the end, in the day of his visitation, they will give God glory as they've seen this mirrored out by these God-fearing wives and husbands in the world around them. And when we get to the battle of wills, this ancient question of old, your will or my will, O God, may we be like David and say, I delight to do your will, O my God, for your law is within my heart. May we live like Christ and say, like John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And I pray that here, right here today, you godly wives of CCC find encouragement to live as fellow heirs with your husbands alongside you, understanding that God has a role for you in marriage, his institution of marriage, not as the head, but as the constant influencer for good, righteousness, purity, a beacon for good, a, a thing that possesses, one that possesses the imperishable quality with absolute incredible value before the creator of this, this gentle and tranquil heart that then mirrors the very bride of Christ, the church before Jesus as the head. May no one look down on any of you wives as you endeavor to live this out because I believe our marriages are at stake in passages like this. And in some cases, the well-being and the eternal destiny of your husband might be at stake as well. You know, I, I was thinking, I, I love my wife as I was reading all this. I love my wife, but reading this made me even realize that there have been a lot, of, a lot of times I just don't value her the way I should. And that's where this became, all of a sudden, it went from a thing, I'm not too excited about it. This is, this is huge. This is huge, how we live our marriages and how we value one another and how we follow God's authorities. And I'll get ne next week to talk to the husbands. So that's coming next week. So just, just wait for that. But I'm going to close with this. The Proverbs 31 woman. I started out quoting Pro Proverbs and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Listen to this woman. 3125, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her 
in the gates.